This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Koto. It's Liz Rem as well, and today another episode of Peace Witness. And today we have Kate Dews from Christchurch, who's a former co-director of the Christchurch Disarmament and Security Centre with her husband Robert Green since 1998. Kate's been on the International Steering Committee for the World Court Project and also a member of the Public Advisory Committee on Disarmament and Arms Control. Kate's been a part-time lecturer in peace studies at the University of Canterbury for 20 years and in 2021 was appointed to the Asia-Pacific Leadership Network for Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament and many other things as well. So welcome, Kate. Morena. So the big to start with, Kate, um, how did you actually get involved? I understand that you were a, um, a young teacher and were were teaching about um, Hiroshima. Is that how your involvement with this got started? Yes, I suppose it was as early as watching the war game as a 16-year-old at high school um, in, and being absolutely blown away by uh, the effects of a nuclear weapon. But I didn't really take it seriously until... I was about 22, and my first husband was in the peace squadron that started in Auckland to oppose visits by nuclear-powered and possibly armed uh, um, ships from the United States. And so I made the tea for all the skippers um, and, and learned about nuclear weapons, but at the same time I was teaching at Epsom Girls Grammar, and some of the music I had to teach was called um, Serenity or Song of Lament to the Victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so I had to teach about what this awful sounding music was about. And I got resources from the Peace Foundation to show the effects of nuclear weapons, um, photographs and stories of survivors, Hibakusha. And, and at the same time, I got John Hersey's book, which was being... Uh, studied in English by my students, and that was about Hiroshima as well. Well, having read that, listened to the music, heard the stories of Hibakusha, I was committed from the age of about 21, 22. Um, and I'd never learned about it at school. So as a teacher, um, I had to do some research. Well, cut a long story short, um, my husband and I studied peace studies in England, and realised that nobody over there knew about the testing in the Pacific, the nuclear testing and the effects, came back. Um, we'd been involved in the peace squadrons and we set up a little group called the Christchurch Peace Collective. And I ran the office for the whole of the South Island for the Foundation for Peace Studies. And one of the jobs I did was to get information to schools uh, to teach students about the effects of nuclear weapons. So we had photos from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we also showed films to students. Uh, and then in, as early as 79, that was 1979, we, we were protesting in the square on Hiroshima Day and having activities that have continued for those 43 years every year uh, in Christchurch. 
Um, and we worked with, we really set up little groups here to work with Larry Ross and others to get a Christchurch as the first nuclear free city uh, in 1982. And um, later, uh, Harold Evans, who was part of our peace group, our peace collective, he was a former magistrate, started a crazy project to go to the International Court of Justice, which is the legal arm of the United Nations, to get an advisory opinion on the legal status of nuclear weapons. Um, but at the same time, I was running an office from home with three small children and educating um, not just in schools, but in the community. And also then we started to set up peace studies at the University of Canterbury. So I suppose that's the first sort of 10 years of my activism. And it's sort of been your whole life really, Kate, um, as well as, of course, New Zealand being very united or growing to be very united towards becoming a nuclear-free country, the first yes. country that was nuclear-free. Uh, yes, actually, we followed Balao, um, Solomon Islands and Samoa. They were actually before um, Vanuatu. They were before us in terms of becoming nuclear free. So I was very involved also with the nuclear free and independent Pacific movement. But yes, we were the first state to legislate um, against nuclear weapons in 1987. And that was very important because part of that was to establish a public advisory committee on disarmament and arms control. And I was appointed as the youngest member of that group of eight, which had a role to advise the government on the implementation of the Nuclear Free Act, but also to um, publish documents. So we actually did research into peace education in schools and in universities. And we exposed a whole lot of issues like how many bases New Zealand was linked to the United States through, like um, flights coming into Harewood um, or Black Birch, which was helping um, the uh, precision of targeting of nuclear weapons. So that was some of the examples of the work that we did. But while I was on that committee, <clears throat> I was actually appointed as the only woman on a 10-member delegation to the UN special session on disarmament in 1988. And that's where I actually addressed the UN group uh, about this possibility of taking a case to the World Court. Um, that was a huge experience for me in 88 because I then made contacts with diplomats from certain countries that then were able to take a lead in this idea of going to the World Court. But that was another 10 years of my life, really from 87 to 96. It took us two or three years um, at international level to get two questions put before the World Health Organization and the UN General Assembly. That was between 92 and 94. But in that time, um, I was very involved as one of the six members of the International Steering Committee of that group. And the interesting thing is in those days, we had no email, we had no funding, um, we had fax machines, and um, I used to have to send faxes that were about half an inch long and tight that would get through, and they cost $3 for that minute. And we had to be very succinct in how we did things, but because we'd learned how to get New Zealand nuclear-free by declaring 
nuclear-free zones and lobbying politicians and, and not diplomats so much, but lobbying, we knew how to educate. Then we used that same model internationally. And by the time we went to the UN the first time, in 1993 UN General Assembly, we had over 700 um, international organizations supporting us. And this was all by letters being sent to people. We had prominent endorsers like Desmond Tutu and Gorbachev and all the Anglican primates of the, the bishops of, around the world <laughs> supporting us and um, indigenous groups and we really brought it. We even had the Kapiti Migraine Support Group, um, you know, from New Zealand. We probably had the most groups in New Zealand supporting us. We had bishops and um, lecturers at university and people to give us some credibility about all this. But we also co we had co-sponsors who were doctors, lawyers and the International Peace Bureau. So some of those groups in the international scene had won the Nobel Peace Prize. So that gave us credibility <clears throat> to take these questions to the court. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, the question that went there was about the health and environmental effects of use of nuclear weapons and armed conflict. The amazing thing is, was that we were able to collect 4 million personally signed declarations of public conscience and get them to the World Court as an educational tool. Um, and we also got 40 states prepared to come and give evidence at the World Court, um, both on the health issue and on the question that finally went through the General Assembly after much intimidation from the nuclear weapon states and all their allies. There was huge bullying that went on and threats. But this is the question that we put before the World Court. Is the threat or use of nuclear weapons in any circumstance permitted under international law? It was a huge question. It uh, took on, really challenged the whole of the security system for the most powerful states in the world, including the five permanent members who are all nuclear weapon states. But what it did was force them to come to the court to argue whether these were legal or not. It took until 1996 for the court to give a decision and there were 14 judges and what it, the court decided was the threat or use of nuclear weapons would generally be contrary to the rules of international law applicable in armed conflict, and in particular, the principles and rules of humanitarian law. And they also said unanimously that there was an obligation to pursue in good faith and bring to a conclusion negotiations leading to nuclear disarmament in all its aspects under strict and effective control. What is interesting is that it took another 20 years of negotiations at the UN, a huge amount of work by people all over the world and diplomats and leaders and countries. And we finally in 2017 got a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which basically outlawed the use and threat possession of nuclear weapons. And that was building on the work of so many groups all over the world. And I suppose for me, that experience of going to the court made me realize how important it was that we wrote up our own history or her story. And so I did actually pursue a PhD and wrote up 
the, our story from all the documents I had in New Zealand, because what we'd had before was people coming from overseas, especially men, to write the story of how New Zealand became nuclear free. And I got angry sharing our story to a whole lot of men. <laughs> and I thought, no, we've got to write our own stories. So I did that. That then suddenly opened doors to a point where by 1998, once I had a PhD on my belt uh, and the results from the World Court, I was asked to be on the UN study of the um, Secretary General on peace and disarmament education. So I served for two years on that committee with basically ambassadors from around the world, but I was the only one that had taught peace education and peace studies um, on that board. So, and the only non-governmental person. So that was a really interesting experience. And from that, two years later, I was appointed to the UN Secretary General's Advisory Board on Disarmament. And again, that was an amazing experience, being on that for five years on a committee that was chaired by the UN Secretary General and wonderful to have input as a woman, but also as an ordinary grassroots activist uh, and mother, because I gave a very different perspective from the ambassadors. So uh, this, was, this was before... Zoom and so on. Did, so did you travel over to meetings or yes, how did yes. that work? Yes, it was unpaid, but the UN um, paid my airfares to go to meetings in Geneva and in New York um, for only about four or five days, but it was enough to have input. Um, it was a huge responsibility, but a very, very exciting position for me to, to have at that time. Yes, and of course, all, all during this time, you were juggling demands of bringing up three daughters. I was. From 1991, I was a solo parent with three young uh, daughters and uh, running three jobs as much as I could to make ends meet, but also to run the office of the Peace Foundation for the South Island. But during the World Court project, I happened to meet a charming um, former commander who flew nuclear weapons around, called Robert Green, who I then married in 1997. And he finally moved out here. And we set up the uh, Disarmament and Security Centre, which we've always run from home because there's been very little funding to do what we've done. And uh, we've become quite a strong team, really. Once you had someone who was a former commander in the British Navy who had flown nukes around, had that sort of experience, then you had a lot more credibility than just an ordinary solo mum from Christchurch. So it meant we attracted a little bit of funding. We were involved in a, a group called the Middle Powers Initiative, which built on the World Court project and really went to Middle Powers to try and get them on board, um, both at government level and diplomatic level, to support going for a convention against nuclear weapons. So Rob wrote a lot of books on nuclear deterrence and, and we wrote books right up the history of the World Court project. And we've continued to keep our local activities about education going as well. That's really important for me. And in 2002, we set up a peace city, the first peace city in, in this country. And uh, that was an amazing time. We had exhibitions about Gandhiji. We had um, photographic big exhibition from the mayors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
um, we got uh, um, statues and sculptures to go to the peace park in Nagasaki and have a, agreements between Christchurch as a peace city and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we did a lot of education around the city and that's become even more important now after the mosque attacks in our city. And people may know that Yusuf Islam has given us a peace train for Christchurch and it looks like we might even get a peace park. We've certainly got a peace bell, a world peace bell here. And so we've kept that sort of educational role and, and focus for our city. Well, those are tremendous, tremendous experiences. And of course, um, it's um, Cat Stevens, as you mentioned, yes. who is donating this peace train. Isn't that a wonderful gesture? It's fantastic for Christchurch and the City Council called out a week ago or a few weeks ago for volunteers and when we rang to see how they're getting on, they said we've got a lot of volunteers from the Muslim community and others that we're training up to um, take kids on rides, not just the kids, I think, on the little peace train, um, but they were going to do it for to mark the 20 uh, or the anniversary of the earthquakes here, but of course with COVID and Christchurch we've had to pull back on any of these public events at the moment. Right, yeah. So just I'm just curious, Kate, what's kept you going all this time? You seem to you know, have tremendous energy and doing very demanding things. You know, what's your sort of secret that's kept you going? <laughs> I don't think there's a secret. I think ever since I saw the film on The War Game and learned, saw these huge warships coming into our harbour and at the time we were at an Anglican um, training centre for my husband and I remember George Armstrong who started the Peace Squadron calling it public liturgy on the water and I always felt that this was sort of a I suppose a faith thing for me that People taking direct action that was non-violent could have a huge impact um, and New Zealand had a special role in it. And uh, I've always felt like a knowing that it's something that I've needed to give my life to. Um, and I think bringing up three small children, especially daughters, and finding out about the stories of the Pacific women who were giving birth to jellyfish babies and had cancers because of the effect of nuclear testing, I thought we're in a country where my kids are safe, but I don't want these weapons threatening other people all over the world. So it's a great motivator being a mum for me, but also a great motivator being involved in small groups that could get your city nuclear free, then help get your country nuclear free, and then work with other states to build a movement internationally. And I suppose We've had some successes along the way. We've had a comprehensive test ban treaty. We've, I've been appointed to committees where I've been able to have a voice. And all those things have sustained me. Um, but there was a sense of a rightness in the cause and the, need, the urgency of it that someone, people needed to dedicate their lives to this. And I was lucky with the group of people around us in Christchurch who supported us. Yes, and you've worked with some tremendous people like uh, Dr. Helen Caldicott and um, Pauline Tangiora. Mm. I have, and Pacific women, Indigenous women in particular, making sure that they were at the World Court so their voices were heard was really important. So we had a woman from the Marshall Islands 
give testimony in the court. Um, I've also been to Japan many times and met many survivors. And I did help organise getting Helen Caldercott here for the first time in 1983. And I'll never forget the day because she arrived and I was due to pick her up from the airport, but I gave birth to daughter name number three that day. So um, <laughs> Helen had to come and visit me in the hospital. <laughs> but um, we had, that night we had 400 people at a public meeting in Christchurch and um no, Helen had a huge impact at the time when she came through New Zealand. Her passionate uh, speeches and her control of the facts, really, and her passion and getting people mobilised, um, she certainly affected it. And I think it was only a few days, a few weeks after her speech, because she gave it in April. Um, and Mother's Day was in early May, and there were 30,000 women and children who marched in Auckland um, only a few weeks after Helen had spoken there. So, yes, it had a huge impact in terms of mobilising people to get our nuclear-free policy in 1984 and then our Nuclear-Free Act in 1987. And Pauline Tangiora, of course, is my... I'm her whangai. She's um, a kuia who's given her life to peace witness as well and she was at the world court with us she's been very strongly involved in women's international league for peace and freedom and in indigenous issues all over the world where she's spoken out so yes it's really important to honor her and other indigenous leaders yes absolutely what about have any of your daughters taken after you in any way it's an interesting question. Um, my middle daughter did peace studies that I was teaching at Canterbury, although we had luck luckily we had different names, so she didn't the students didn't know that she was my daughter. And um, she then also worked with Alan Weir in Wellington in the peace office for a year. She's now doing development and education in Wellington, so she's carrying on with a lot of the principles. And Jess, my oldest daughter, did a year with Oxford Research Group and worked at the UN for a while and she's done a different career. And my youngest is a musician and she sings at every Hiroshima Day event. Um, so they, they do it in their own way, but I wouldn't want them to carry what we've been carrying. Yes, I guess it's something that it's really difficult to retire from, this work. <laughs> we tried. Um, we have got a wonderful young woman who's taken over our work and she's working from home with juggling two small children as well and we've also got one of our young people who's working who's now writing his PhD on our work which is wonderful and he helps sort um, about 200 um, box files with me to put into the Macmillan Brown University for university students and others to have a resource to look at so, yes, um, it's hard to retire because people still ask us to do interviews like this, but this is education and it's wonderful and it's a great way of hopefully empowering future generations. Absolutely. Well, you know, thank you so much, Kate, for all your work and, and um, regards to your husband, Rob, as well. And, yeah, thank you for being available and inspiring um, many of us and also, of course, this the world court project I guess was just prefiguring the nuclear ban treaty at the United Nations um, which came into effect um, a year ago so um, many thanks Kate 
and all the very best. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.